Will it happen or won't it happen? You can bet on it with the Betfair Exchange, proud sponsors of the Final Furlong Podcast. The Final Furlong Podcast is proudly brought to you by AtTheRaces.com, the ultimate online resource for racing fans. We've threatened to do it for a very long time and finally it is here. Welcome along to a special edition of the Final Furlong Podcast. I'm Emmett Kennedy. This is a betting special and there's nobody better to get on for this than the founder of Learn, Bet, Win, uh, a recent addition to the Final Furlong Podcast family as well. Very popular over the summer period. Delighted to welcome him back and looking forward to having him on over the next few months and hopefully next few years as well. Declan Marr, pro punter from LearnBetWin.com. Welcome back to the Final Forum Podcast, my friend. Happy Christmas, Emmis. Oh, Merry Christmas. You stuffed from Christmas dinner? Um, very much so, yeah. Mince pies everywhere. There's mince pies all over the studio here as well. All that weight's been piled back onto me. So I wanted to get you. I wanted to get you on to uh, discuss the psychology of betting, the the form tools that you use. What works for one person may not necessarily work for another. But I'm always trying to learn, and I'm always trying to improve my betting. And particularly speaking to somebody like yourself or Neil Channing or Hugh Taylor. Whenever I do speak to you, I always come away from that conversation feeling like there's something I've taken away from that. It's a fascinating time for horse racing betting. Some ways there is a lot of negativity, but we're also treated to more information than we've ever could have dreamt of having before. As a specialist better like yourself, you need to have an edge. What do you feel your edge is? For me, I, if I had to say what my edge is, I think I, I tried to put it all together. I don't... Uh... I don't just use one aspect. Like there's people that could make money uh, just from watching races. Other people might maybe use sectional times, overall times. Uh, you couldn't make money just from getting angles from data anal- analysts. But I think the best analyst would be somebody who uses all of them and puts it all together and then takes each perspective bet maybe on its own merits to see whether they think it has an edge or not. Uh, rather than just using one. Um, I think a lot of punters maybe make the mistake when they're looking for an edge. It's too, maybe is the word obvious? Yeah, obvious. And that, there's a fellow I follow on Twitter, um, uh, Will Hoffman, I think his name is. Uh, he stop, posted a video of... Stop watch racing. It. Yeah, that's him. Yeah. yeah, he's a shrewd guy. He, he posted a video the other day of uh, a horse that was fairly tenderly handled and there was a a good few replies and like some of them were saying agreeing with him and yes it was and but in general most of the replies were oh thanks will i'll put that in my tracker definitely want to watch for next time like when like that's the very last type of horse that i'd ever be putting in my tracker because it's it was too obvious like the same as, say, a horse that's a really unlucky loser been very obvious. You're never going to make money on them the next day because they're actually massively overbet rather than when you're trying to make money, you need something that will be underbet. In other words, that the price, they might be 8-1 to one when you think they should be 6-1. to one. But horses that were unlucky last time out are generally 3-1 to one when they should be 5-1 to one because everyone has seen them. And I think the replies to that tweet actually reinforce something that I've known for a long time. But in general, punters still are going about getting an edge the wrong way, and they're looking for something that's obviously good. It does definitely increase their chance next time that the horse was unlucky last time, but 
that's not how you make money. You make money by the market been wrong and the market will have more than accounted for something like that. I also remember a number of years ago, a former Timeform employee talking about submitting his first report and most of the detail that he put in was about the unlucky runner-up and his editor was saying to him, you know there was a winner of that race. Like, that's who you should be talking about, first of all. Then if you want to talk about the unlucky runner-up, you can, but a lot of people will have noticed that. Talk about the bigger picture. And definitely there have been plenty of, of racing experts who've highlighted the fact that seemingly unlucky horses or lack of effort on a horse last time out or, or as prof scott said recently on live television a horse who was stopped blatantly last time out and if prof can say it then we can all say it uh, a horse who was stopped last time out is definitely going to be one that if there are still odds compilers uh, they're going to be having a big warning notice about that horse themselves and as you say it's going to be over bet next time out so you're taking a little bit of everything then you're not just looking at what's in vogue like stride analysis or sectional timing you're looking at ratings no, you're looking for i don't video. think you can ever have too much information i know uh uh some people would say you have and definitely i've heard trainers come out with some awful claptrap when people want more info like say a horse's weights or wind ops before they came in it was the standard line was oh people won't know how to use them there's so many different kinds they they just confuse their poor little minds. And it's the same with, with horse weights. They say, oh, a horse could be growing and therefore it'll be heavier than it was last year. And like they must think we're awful thick that we can't account for that in any analysis you would do with the data. As far as I'm concerned, you can never have too much data you can, because if, if, if there is actually no value in it, you just don't have to use it. Like, but it says sectional timings are, are no use they're actually just ignorant. They don't know how to use them. And rather than admit that, they just try and maybe diss somebody that does use them. I wouldn't diss it. There's people that will make money just from maybe coming up with their own time figures and backing them. Although I think less so than in the past because they definitely are, if not overbet, close to being overbet now, definitely closer to the off if a horse put up a really good figure last time. Um, so blindly backing them mightn't work. But you still use that information in your overall assessment of the horse's chances. I think whatever tools are at your disposal or that you're comfortable with in your armory and that works for you, use. And that includes trend analysis, which we've often mocked on the Final Forum podcast. But if you're somebody who gets a kick out of that and, and you enjoy doing it, then by all means, do it. It's not hurting anybody. It's an opinion. And, and with that in mind then, Declan, when it comes to forming an opinion, have you decided to specialize on certain types of races because as as a horse racing fan at my very core i love all codes of it i, I love the flat i love jumps I, if it's a big saturday i want to get involved but there are plenty of days where i will look at a card and just go i can't find a bet here I, I i cannot see anything that is attracting me to place a bet and therefore i'll sit back and just watch it uh, as a younger man that would not have been what i would have done i would have blindly betted but learning through time I, i've got to that point but is there in the success that you have had and the success that, that you're attaining now is that through specializing in a certain type of race i'm not sure about specializing in a certain type of race i do bet a lot more on flat racing than jumps racing and it's mainly just because you can't do everything and i do think that over the course of a whole year flat racing is much more competitive than jumps racing heresy 
heresy. We got the King George. We got the Leopardstown Christmas Festival going on, and you're talking about flat racing. This is a shocker. Absolutely disgraceful. Continue. Street prices are all well and good, but like I have to make money. I have to have bets every day. If you only if you only betted on Grade One racing, how many races have you got to bet on a year? No matter how good you were, and even if you had a thirty percent edge on them, you still wouldn't. Okay, you could get bigger bets on, but the variance would be in like terrible. You could easily have losing years even with an edge like that. And you have to be betting more often and get an edge more often. Otherwise, you're just, I suppose, turning your back on profit. And flat racing for me, in general, day-to-day handicaps are generally competitive. Whereas if you look at some of the everyday jump racing on Monday to Friday, it can be awful stuff altogether where you have Mm -hmm. maybe three horses coming back after been out for a year, another couple haven't run in a couple of months and some of the others are, it's just, have no chance like they're totally out of form and it's it's not very it's harder to spot something that the market the rest of say the odds compilers and the general public will miss if there's so little to spot in the first place and i think you have probably more information for flat racing then as well because of that they actually run more often if you take your average sprint handicapper like they could run 20 times a year and considering i would definitely be more of a form-based analyst analyst i use all aspects of it to come up with my judgment like but i like going on known information rather than trying to guess unknown information so something like dundalk then friday night lights would would really suit you for example between when you have declarations out and you can factor in if there is a draw bias yes or no stable form all of the various different information when are you most likely to place your bets so i I know that you for your site, and I'm just looking, 1,393% bank growth on the primary advisory service on Learn, Bet, Win. So you send out tips in the morning. You're more than likely to be going through the form guide and, and placing your bet day of, morning of race, as opposed to, like I would be, going through the card on a Thursday for a Saturday race. Yeah, I'd, I'd look through for so for tomorrow's race and I would do it uh, this evening. And I'll come up with horses. I might have them down in my tracker. It could be certain angles that I will look at that I think are generally under bet next time. Um, and I will look at horses to qualify under that criteria. And then I could rule, I might have a lot of horses. I could have 30 horses to look at, but I could end up ruling 27 of them out for various reasons the following day. Um, there's different schools of thoughts on whether you you have to put an accurate price or your estimate of a price on a horse because otherwise you don't know whether it's a good bet or not. But there is a uh, two different maybe schools of thought on how to do that in that some people absolutely hate looking at any odds, even a tissue before they do it because it, you know, the six to one price that they went can kind of get in your head and it can be hard then to maybe get your own feel for the price. Uh, and I've done it that way uh, more recently and I think mainly just during the summer, you just have too many horses to look at and too many horses that you think might be a good bet. But if you spend an hour pricing up all the runners in that race only to find that the horse that you've now made four to one is actually already three to one with the bookmakers, you've just wasted an hour. And I actually find now I can, by looking at the prices the evening before, even though they can be very rough and they can totally collapse before the next day, it's still a better guide to maybe rule out races that there is no bet and you can move on to the next one so you don't uh, you don't waste your time, if you know what I mean. 
Um, and that's even another thing in general. If you you shouldn't try and there's so many races and you don't have to have a bet in every race if you want to make money. And if so, if you've no angle, you've had a look at the top end of the market and you can't find any way into it, just move on and move on to another race. You're better off going deeper into a race where there's a decent possibility of a bet than spending loads of time on races that are very unlikely to have a bet. You mentioned the At The Races tracker. So I can tell you right now that there's probably 50 horses on my tracker and there's at least a few of them that have been there for two years that I should have taken out by now. What qualifies for you entering a horse in your tracker? Because you made the comparison between the, the tweet about a last time out horse who was deemed to be unlucky. So you know that's going to be an overbet horse. So that's not something you're looking for. And is it difficult for you to realize the jig is up with a certain horse that it's either going to be too short a price next time out or it's now too known in the public domain so there's no point in me looking at this horse anymore and therefore deleting it? Uh, yeah, I, I do think that's, as punters, we're, I don't know, I think we're programmed to get really pissed off when we miss a winner. But if we miss a loser, we don't even notice it. We just yeah. go, geez, God, that didn't win. I think we'd be far better off if you tried to program ourselves to be the exact opposite. In other words, where we patted ourselves on the back for not backing a loser because, say, say we've had it in our tractor, seen it run the last day uh, over a mile. It, ne- it, was, it was better than a result, but the real reason you put it into your tractor was because you thought it wanted 10 furlongs. You then look at the race the next day and it's over a mile. Okay, yeah, it was better than the result. I'll still have a look. But then suddenly you see, oh, like there's no pace. So now it could turn into a, an equivalent of a seven furlong race. Sometimes the inclination is, oh, yeah, but if it wins, I'm after my, you know, maybe maybe you've had this horse on the tracker for a while. You'll be so sick that if it wins when you don't back it, that you end up still putting a price on it and still backing it, even though in your heart of hearts, you know, it's not a good bet. But you will get so upset if it wins, you still end up backing it. Whereas and the opposite of that is the horse, when you don't back it and it loses, you don't take the time to maybe say to yourself, well, well done, nowhere near as much as the bollocking you just gave yourself for the odd time when the horse actually wins. Yeah. And I think we'd be better off if we maybe praise ourselves a bit more for missing losers rather than missing winners. Or rather, yeah, missing, missing back and losers rather than missing back and winners. I've tried to do that lately if I've seen a horse that, I meant to put in the tracker for some reason got distracted didn't maybe there was a squirrel in the background and I got distracted and uh, then I find out that the horse is one at six to one and I'm kicking myself but at the same time it is about price and so with that in mind when you're placing a bet there are plenty of professional punters and racing pundits who will make a very strong case that this threes on shot is gold it's a five-star gold bet you should be getting stuck in. It's triple bond rated. What price is it that you're looking for? Because odds-on is not something that is going to lead to long-term success. So what are the kind of prices that you're looking for when you're placing a bet? Um, I'd actually disagree with odds-on won't lead to long-term success. Uh, Don't bookmakers bet odds-on on almost every horse in every race? Good point. And they make money long term because if they're laying you seven to one, they're effectively backing it not to win at one to seven. 
Um, no, you can you can make money at at any price point. Uh, some people won't be comfortable with it though, because some people won't be comfortable with the fact that if they're back in. Uh, probably more in sports betting than horse racing. But if you were back in something that average price of five to one on, they won't be, they wouldn't be comfortable with, even if it wins 90% of the time or something, you will make a lot of money off. You would never get a, a margin that big on, on something at that price. But some people still wouldn't be comfortable with it because they won't be comfortable with the fact when suddenly three of them get beaten in a row and they've lost so much kind of like people there's people i assume on betfair for the in-running markets that lay the one zero ones like somebody has to be laying them i assume there are some people making money doing it but it does mean that when you get one wrong it's taken a big it, it takes a big hit into your profits that you need another hundred to get your money back if you know what i mean and yeah. some people their temperament it won't suit them but for and they'll be better off trying to find value maybe at, at bigger prices. So I, I think everything is, uh, you have to take your temperament into account. For me, I've, I've backed things at 20 to one on that I thought should be 100 to one on and I've backed horses at 200 to one just because I thought they should be 50 to one. I, I don't really uh, differentiate much on that on that side of things at all. I think if you're gonna make money, what you do have to do is you have to think for yourself. To beat the markets, you have to be at the spot when generalizations are wrong. For example, like say the horse was an unlucky loser, it's or deemed to be an unlucky loser. It's boxed in, three furlongs down, going well, doesn't get a run until the final furlong, flies home from six cents down to get beaten a length. Now, in general, that horse will will probably be an, be unlucky. What happens is that people think it was always unlucky and. Whereas the time, say that they had gone a really good gallop, uh, they quickened it, kicked for home a bit too soon around the three furlings, just when the horse was blocked in. And then the final furling was basically run at a crawl where everything else was stopping. That horse could actually be flattered because by being boxed in, it actually helped his jockey. It stopped him from making the mistake that all the other jockeys made. And you have to be able to spot when the rule is wrong. So... And in general, you just you just have to think for yourself. Look look at everything and see. Well, why am I right? Even when it, when you have a bet, if you think a horse is six to one, and it's ten to one, I wouldn't really ever recommend just backing that horse because he's bigger than than your estimate. I I would always want a reason why I'm right and the market is wrong, because I think if you can't find a reason, there's a good chance that it's the market knows something that you don't know. If you if you have a reason, like say a certain you seen it run last time out, and you're very confident that it needed to step up a trip that it's getting today, but you don't think, and you think that it was subtle enough that the market in general wouldn't have spotted it. Well, then that's your reason. But if if you can't think of anything, well, then I wouldn't just go back on the horse because the chances are the market actually knows something that you don't know and that you haven't accounted for. You've, um, made, you've made a number of points I'd like to to delve into there, Declan. One of them being if a horse is a bigger price than you think it should be. And we do often see that if a horse is supposed to be 5 to 1 and now it's 10s and it runs accordingly, that the market knew something. But the the big thing, and this has been going on for years, 
is the betting ring isn't necessarily as prevalent as it once used to be you would definitely argue that the exchanges are are more of a of a focal point particularly five minutes before the off as to what's going to transpire in a race or or how a horse is predicted to perform but you will always hear about the gamble and the money is coming for this one the money is coming for this is the money horse or it could be at the cheltenham festival and there's the irish banker or the british banker or there's the big hot pot horse as the talking point and i can completely understand because i've been there wanting to be part of that that this horse can't be beaten or it's going to be a part of history and and so people get carried away or if it's just a, a average saturday afternoon race and this this horse is a massive gamble for certain connections you want to feel like you're you're part of that you're in on it you're in on the game if you're ever going to make this game work have your own view be willing to stick by it if you're wrong you're wrong and you go on to the next one, you have to be able to step back from the crowd. And that's why you've become successful at what you do, because you're not just piling into a gamble that you've seen on a Saturday afternoon and is being talked up on the telly. You're you're sticking to your guns. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think sticking to your guns, or more, more thinking for yourself, but I wouldn't say stick to your guns because you can always reevaluate. But you're yeah, that's a you're better way. Evaluating the same way as you did your initial assessments. In other words, you could you could account for new information, like say it's a certain trainer you might fancy a horse and it's drifting, and you know that that means today is not today. Mm. Um, and you can you can use that new information, or there could be new information about the ground or something that you hadn't. You watched the first race and realized. Uh, the rail looks bad today or you don't want to be on the inside and your horse is on the inside. So you don't stick to your guns rigidly, but you do stick to your, your process of of uh, deciding whether it's a good or a bad bet. I do think as well, when I said about Ben Ryan been wrong, the closer it is to the off, the bigger, the, the more of a reason you need why you're right. In other words, if, if you price up a race the night before and you think a, you know, a horse should be five to one, and you'd no real angle into this horse, and he's 20 to 1 with a bookmaker. Now, you don't need to come up with a huge reason why to take that price, because the, well, the reason is fairly obvious. The, the traders have just got it wrong, because they will get dozens and dozens and dozens of prizes wrong by quite big margins every night. They just, some of the prices seem to be, you know, picked out of a hat or something like that. Like So it's it's not that hard to, to beat those early prices. And you don't need as much of a reason, but if you're betting two minutes before the off and you see a horse at 20 to one, did you made five to one? Unless you can come up with a, a fairly good, solid reason why the market is that far out of line, well, the chances are the market just knows something that you don't know. Like, And bettors will react to information in very different ways. Like there's no, there's no ob- objectivity to a betting market. It, it depends on how I interpret certain piece of information and how you interpret a certain piece of information which is how we could end up on the opposite ends of the betfair exchange for example i could be pressing back while you're pressing lay the vast majority of punters overall as much as we love this game particularly horse racing are going to lose which is why i think you really need to celebrate the winning days and that brings me to the psychology of betting because it can be it can be a fickle game 
but it can be a very testing one as well. And no matter, and you are, like I'm not just saying this or engaging in obsequious behavior because you're on the podcast. You're excellent at what you do. So is Neil Channing. So is Hugh Taylor. But everybody has a downswing. There's variance and there's no getting away from that. But it's how you then deal with that psychological downswing. How have you managed to handle those and adapted to them over the years? I think with with that part of it, first of all, if you're if you're if you're confident in your own ability getting back again to reasons, if you're reading a race and uh, if you're very good at it and you have you'll always have your reason for backing your horse. And if you're confident in your process, well, then the losing run shouldn't affect you because you should know that, look, I, these type of horses that I'm backing, the market does get them wrong. It has it changed? You can always look into stuff like that. Has anything changed? You don't just ignore uh, a downswing. But in general, and most punters really massively, massively undervalue uh, the element of luck in gambling. It doesn't mean because there's such an element of luck that you shouldn't try to become really good at it. Because at the end of the day, when if somebody that is no good at betting has, will have good luck and bad luck, but even when they have good luck, they're still only breaking even. Whereas when they have bad luck, they're losing loads. Whereas somebody that is good when they've good luck, they'll win a lot more than they lose when they have bad luck. So it's still about doing the right things and, and getting an edge. I think to have a, an understanding of variance and losing runs means that when, when when it happens you can you can deal with it much better because you're not suddenly thinking that you're doing something uh, that you're doing something very wrong um, I do think you'd be amazed at some of the the runs that you can have that are within the norm that people would totally not expect like I've had say I do um, I have a Shetland Tips website that I've uh, I think it's six or seven years and it's it's done really, really well. But nearly every year I will have people before they would subscribe, I will have at least a couple of people asking me how I did last year. And I'm there like, I have seven years results on the website. Why don't you look at all seven? Like, But they will be more concerned with how I did last year over a sample size of four days rather than, say, taking into account six years of my premium service and six years of the Sheltonham. They will still think that maybe that four days is it's more important in predicting this year's four days than, than the whole sample. And stuff like that then leads into when they get a bad run, they always think that there's a reason for it other than luck. When in, quite often, most of the time, it's, it really is luck. Um, I did a, I have a Monte Carlo sim here on a, in Excel. And uh, you can kind of plug in different... Um, edges and prices and run it 10,000 times over that sample and then you get how often you will win or lose within that sample and I think you'd be amazed at some of the uh, the results that people would find very hard to believe if you were say a winning punter long term that you could have runs like that and they'd perfectly be within the norm Give me an example Declan uh, Well okay well how about Say, I think my long-term ROI with the premium service is, and the festival package combined, I think it's about 18%, okay? 
and the average price is about seven and a half to one. Okay. Okay. So that's like a very good ROI. Uh, I don't think you could disagree that I, over six years, I have a very good record. So if I was to tell that to somebody, they would expect, um, say I have 50 bets a month, they would expect that I would win money X amount of times. But like for you, with, with, a, with an 18% edge at odds of seven and a half to one, how often do you think I would have a losing month? With say 50 bets a month at that edge. I'd say you're coming out on top an awful lot. So maybe two months of the year you haven't done well? Okay, so just plugging those in and then running 50 bets 10,000 times. I come out on top with those metrics, it will come out on top 73% of the time. So that's more than one in four losing months, which would be more than, more than three, on average, more than three a year. So stay stay staking then 50 euros on each of those bets with 50 bets a month. Running that 10,000 times, your average profit is uh, 500 euro. But the maximum in within all of those samples that I took, the maximum profit was 6,000 euro, whereas the worst loss was 2,500. And that is just total and utter randomness. There is no, it's basically plugging in an 18% edge at odds of seven and a half to one, and then randomly distributing the results around that edge. I don't even want to know how you got the Monte Carlo uh, model built on Excel because it would probably make my brain explode. But do you think that that then means that overall, some punters and betters confuse luck with skill? Well, yeah, because we'll say that's over a month of results. And what the best month was plus 6,000 and the worst was minus 2,500. And that's without any difference in my judgment. Let's pretend this was a dice game rather than my judgment. In other words, that it was a mathematical fact that you had that edge, that it wasn't something that could deteriorate over time. Those are the results that you would expect with that edge. Whereas if you, if you, you were some job convincing somebody after that month and you lost 2,500 betting 50 quid a point, or 50 quid, your total stake at seven and a half to one over 50 bets, if you lost all of them, which will happen, um, did you ha- did you were actually a very successful uh, doing what you do? I don't think you would have any uh, chance of convincing somebody, whereas that's actually, um, that's actually what can happen. Obviously, it won't happen often. But if you, if you brought that out then to make it, if you brought that out then to say a whole year of bets, which would be say about 600 bets with the same edge and the same price, what chance do you think that somebody with an 18% edge over 600 bets a year could have a losing year? It's coming up here at a, you'd have a winning year 95.2% of the time. So basically almost 5% of the time or one year in 20, you would expect to have a losing year. And that's with a, a quite significant edge and a sample of 600 bets. And again, the average profit is, uh, this will vary slightly because even over running the 10,000 times or 10,000 times is not a mathematical, uh, what it is because it's only a simulation. So it's not an exact result like that if you use a formula, but your average profit is 5,987. But within that sample running the 10,000 times, the biggest one, the biggest profit was 20,150. 
whereas the worst loss was minus 6,600. And again, you haven't done anything different. You are just as good for that minus 6,600 a year as you were for the plus 20,000 a year. But like, try convincing somebody of that that there is no difference in skills. Now, granted, it would be very rare that the, the bad year happens, but it can happen within an overall massively profitable profitable uh, sequence. And, but, and Declan, if we're honest about it, and, and this is not me by any means having a go at, at uh, those on social media, but you can see somebody who's like hugely successful, like Hugh Taylor, who has a profit year on year. And maybe there's two tips to go up in one day and they don't win. And straight away, there's abuse for him. Um, Tom Siegel, Paul Keeley, you know, very successful, um, proven edge, abuse because they have a bad day. There's a lot of punters, and I would have been one of these people, who are lazy, psychologically flawed. Um, I was definitely impulsive when I was younger. I, I used to be somebody who would react when Big Mac would be in the betting ring saying, and the money's coming for this horse now. Sevens into fours. I'd be going, oh my God, there's a gamble going on. It's a JP horse. I got to back this one. And, and it took me a while reading different books like David Lee Priest's books, um, The Betting Edge and Against the Odds, to, to learn how to adapt. But even though you've gone through all of those statistics and you now know you have the you have the data to back up your success and your proven track record over the last seven years uh the fact that their variance is something that can kick in you know that as long as you stick to what you're doing you're going to make a profit this, paul keely would probably say something similar hugh taylor would probably say something similar and he'll be back on the show in the new year all being well but that being said though when it does go wrong and when you do hit a dip, and it's not a model, it's real life, how do you manage that and then cope with those losing runs, cope with that variance? I, d- I definitely think it's harder when, when you run a tipping service because other people are dependent on you, um, and it's not, just, it's not just your own bets. Uh, so, like, I've been... I think the last day I worked was a proper job anyway, was uh, the Champion Hurdle 2001, so in my own betting for maybe 12 years before I ever did the tipping service, I would have seen a lot of losing runs and I know they happen. I'll have done analysis into what expected ones are so that you're not totally su- surprised by them. Uh, so overall, as long as, you, as long as the losing run isn't too bad that it affects your, your bank or your money that you have to live off, which it shouldn't if you're staking correctly. Uh, it doesn't. I was always pretty good at handling them, and it didn't really affect me at all. Um, I don't. I still don't think they affect me. In well, I suppose they do a bit. You definitely would get frustrated now, but more so that you feel that you need you, you need to explain uh, to people who maybe only just joined for two months and you suddenly hit your worst two months in a year or two years or whatever. And like, there is a good few people that will totally understand variance and they're used to it as well. But then you will get people that aren't, and you feel like you you have to justify yourself to them when you know yourself that it's really it's totally out of your, your control. That I'm still doing everything right, but the results are just going against you. Um, like on your other point about doing the same thing. I definitely would, you would use the same process of logically analyzing something and coming to your conclusions. And you know that 
you're good at doing that. It doesn't necessarily mean you would blindly keep following an angle that had worked in the past because with nearly every angle, uh, especially if it's based on anything to do with just uh, the data side of things, it, the market will eventually catch up with it and your edge will go. So you have to you have to be aware of when that can happen to change things. But like I've been changing stuff for 18 years and I know that I know that I have an edge in the market. So if, if I'm suddenly losing I and I looked at it and there's no logical reason, and a lot of the time you can tell anyway, a good thing to do, I think, would be uh, if you compared the prices you're back in horses at to the Betfair SP, and say you have a month. I had, uh, I think, 40 losers, 42 losers in a row there at the end of, uh, what month is it now, December? It's at Christmas. End, it's Christmas, yeah. At the end of December, or uh, end of October into November. And uh, when you're when you're back in horses at odds of around 10 to 1, it's actually not that big a, of a price for that for something like that to happen. Well, that'd be pretty standard. Uh, because each time it's basically like you're back in... Uh, it's one to ten to be a loser kind of thing, and mm. um, not accounting for your edge, obviously. But uh, when you know when you know stuff like that, if you if you compare your odds and you normally beat, say, the bet for SP by twelve percent, and I actually did that because I I just sent it, uh, members an email at the end of uh, of the month, and I think at the end of November, my average beating bet for SP since launch was about twelve and a half percent, thirteen percent. And in November, it was actually 15%, despite the fact that we had a crap month. And like we also had four winners, I think, was in eight or nine seconds and eight or nine thirds. So like straight away, it's pretty obvious that luck was what went against you. The fact that your distribution of winners versus places was so skewed against the winners and versus what the norm would be. And also, the market actually thinks your tips for November were better than they were over the average of six years. And like, things like that can both give you credence when you're trying to explain it to people, but they can also set your own mind at ease that it isn't something else that maybe you should change. Um, so I definitely think something like that, whereas if you've suddenly seen that you didn't beat at Bedford SP at all over, say, 50 bets in that sample, that you were minus 2% against it, well, then you might want to start looking at looking a little deeper into is there a reason why you're getting so many drifters or, or something like that, like... You were talking about altering and uh, and realizing when something that you've been doing that has been successful and the market has now copped onto it. Can you give me an example of, of something like that recently? Something that, that was very profitable for you, but the market has now copped on and it's not necessarily as, as valuable to you anymore and, and you've had to change. Um, I think because I tried to use a bit of everything, like I will watch races for horses that I think will be under bet the next day. And what you think will be under bet, I suppose, is in a way got from past experience, data analysis. Uh, like say, I think I'm pretty good at spotting horses that want to step up and trip. And sometimes it's really obvious. I won't put one of them on my track or anything like that, but sometimes it isn't. Um, and it might be that. That could be an edge that I think would probably last. Something like sectional times, like uh, Simon Rowlands was, I think, the first person to write about uh, 
using a formula for upgrading horses for uh, based on the, the overall time versus the the closing stages of the race. So say a race was run at faster than average, it would be maybe a finished speed of 110%. In other words, they were going faster for the final, say two furlings than the race as a whole. Or likewise, if it was, it would be different for different tracks. But And then coming up with an upgrade figure uh, based on that, on how much to upgrade a horse for a race, and then coming up with a, a kind of a, a fair result. Um, I think something like that would have had far more value as a bet. It still has the exact same uh, value as a, a race reading form analysis tool, but for actually blindly backing horses that were on, marked up a good bit last time out, whereas you might have made money five years ago, I don't think you would now. Them horses would tend to be the really obvious ones over bet. But you can still use sectional times, um, especially the furling by furling ones on at the races, which are obviously you can... Uh, you would be able to come up with far more sophisticated uh, algorithms to uh, come up with a fair result when you have furlong by furlong times than just uh, one split. Then, so it gets the what I suppose the the high level look at it, where it was just an upgrade figure on one thing that will eventually get overbet. But there's so many more ways that you can go deeper and deeper into it that again, I always think that the more information becomes available, the the better a skilled analyst will be. So you just delve a bit deeper and come up with the ones that aren't obvious. Everything obvious kind of eventually gets over. But time figures were something that if a horse had a really good time figure versus, say, a handicap mark last time out, you could blindly back it in the race, providing the conditions were similar or whatever. Uh, something like that, again, now I think the market pretty much would account for it. And like overall, the market will eventually account for most things. So yeah, which is why I think rather than using just an angle and blindly backing it, I think you should have an angle to give you a reason to look at a horse. And then you still use all of your other skills to decide whether the price is right on the day. And that way, if your skills are better than the market, your skills are likely to stay better than the market and you will always be able to, to make a profit. What's your take on stride analysis? And is it something that you've added to your arsenal? It's not something I've... Um, I've analysed in detail myself. Now, I've read the stuff uh, Simon Rollins has wrote on it. Uh, I find it interesting. I definitely think there's use in it, but to do it, we you need the data. So uh, you would need the data in Excel format and analyse it. I'm not sure whether Simon has that. I haven't looked for it yet because it's just something I haven't had time to do. Uh, but if I could get my hands on that, I would definitely uh, look into it deeper uh, because, again, it's like I said earlier, it's it's information and you could analyze it and find it has no use. And then that's fine, you just disregard it. But if, if you can find any use for it at all, it's just it's something you throw into the the box when you're coming up with a with a price on a horse. If you've considered, you think it visually it looks like the horse might want further or shorter, the stride analysis could help you either back that up or contradict it, which again is... You, you can account for that in your price. Um, I know sometimes you can feel that if you throw too many things in, it's hard to come up with a, how do you come up with six to one for a horse's chance when you have to consider the go and the trip it had the last day, it's off a break, it's trainer is not in form. And it just, it can jumble up your head a bit. I think when you're 
analyzing form, you should possibly try and break things down into into parts, analyze them all separately, and then join them back on. Like, so say if a horse ran bad last time out, it has a poor draw this time, and the ground is different. Instead of putting that all in to the mix and trying to come up with a price for it, if say you think, well, what price would it have been if it hadn't run last time? And you say, well, five to two. Then you say, well, okay, so it ran crap. Was there a reason for it in, in relative to today's race? And it might be, yeah, I have a pretty good excuse for it. Uh, it was trapped five wide, uh, up at a strong pace. The fact that it faded was nearly entirely predictable. So you might actually only knock it out to three to one, and that's only because the fact that it happened last time that it pulled, it might happen again. Um, whereas if it had no excuse, you might say, well, that makes it eight to one today because maybe it's you, you just think that it's losing its form. Then you account for the fact that uh, it has a poor draw today. So you might say, well, the draw in general would be a 25% disadvantage. So you add that on top of your three to one. And then you account for the fact that it's a different ground, which might be a positive or a negative. And you might have 15 other things to account for. But I find that if you come up with a, a generalized price first and then add in all the parts, I think it's kind of loosely based on like Bayes theorem or something like that. Uh, it's much easier to come up with a, an end result, I suppose, you're happy with to, to estimate a horse's chance. Uh, just before everybody loses their minds, I should point out that you were saying your last real job was uh, 2001 Cheltenham, which of course was cancelled due to foot and mouth disease. So we'll say 2002 Cheltenham or 2000 Cheltenham, one or the other. Uh, secondly, trainer quotes. One was cancelled, was it? Yeah, that was foot and mouth disease. That was when Isterbrack was robbed okay. of his fourth. Oh, so 2000, are you sure? Yeah. 2000. I always thought it was 2001 was the last day I worked. Uh, it was the day Easter Back was pulled up on the champion hurdle. 2002. Was it? Or La Um, Because I I was I was working with racehorses for what, six or seven years in Dermot Wells, and I was over in Meigler, uh, stood over the winter breaking yearlings, and I used to tell them how I used to always meet off school uh, when Cheltenham was on and then I go in that morning and complaining of a pain in my chest and it had happened to me before so I knew what it was my lung had collapsed Jesus but I rode out I rode out one horse anyway like and it was agony like which they didn't believe a word of it like um, and I went home that day and I never worked again you rode out oh, first First of all I didn't even know that you used to ride out horses so that's a fascinating piece of information but you rode out a horse with a collapsed lung yeah now there's different, various levels of a collapsed lung in that it can be it could collapse the whole way, which would probably be very, very serious at the yeah. time. Uh, it collapsed a certain percentage. like So, yeah, I, I went to the doctor and it was around 12 o'clock or something and he wanted to know, <laughs> will you ring an ambulance to bring me into A&E? And I'm oh, I'm okay, I'll, uh, I'll make my own way in. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't go in until the race was over. But... <laughs> you wanted to see Cheltenham. It was yeah. the Moscow Flyers Oracle and uh, Isterbrack being pulled up in the champion hurdle were far too important uh, than, than sitting in a hospital bed. As an asthmatic, uh, I can feel your pain, uh, but a collapsed lung would be would be much more serious. Uh, it was two thousand and two, my good man. Yeah, um, it was. I'm after googling. But it's but it, but it's it's fine. The fact that you then worked with horses leads nicely into this question: trainer quotes and and jockey quotes and owner quotes. I, I do like interviewing trainers and jockeys and owners, and, and there are certain ones who I very much enjoy talking to. Uh, I think that there are people like Aidan O'Brien and John Gosden, Paul Nichols, Willie Mullins. They, and that's just to, to sample size a, a, a few, 
they really understand the, the the fact that the media is very important and it's a connection to the fans and, and so they can be quite open. But then there are others who are quite closed off and I can understand why they would be. But do you take trainer quotes into account or, or jockey quotes into account when you're deciding on a bet or do you tend to, to stay away from all of that? And when it comes to racecourse gossip, like somebody grabbing you by the elbow and saying, in the bumper, Noel Mead's in the bumper, can't be beaten. It's eating pigeons on the gallops, as Harry Jerram said recently on the podcast. Do you tend to ignore all, all of that stuff? Um, I think in most cases, yes. Uh, there are times when a trainer call could be useful. If, say, uh, especially in a, a bigger race where you can get one handily enough, say you're looking at a horse, uh, hasn't run since last year, uh, and you think he's, for whatever reason, you're interested in him in a race, getting a quick quote to see was he injured, is the trainer claiming he's fit or is going to need the run can be useful. Um, in general, I like information like that is, again, something that you can throw into the pot. The trainer says it's not fit. Well, what, you know, you know the way some trainers, oh, this this will win. But like he says that about everything. You have to know the trainer as well. Nigel Tristan Davis. <coughs> yeah. And, you can use the information. What I don't really have much need use for is somebody saying, uh, oh, I fancy this horse today or, or back this. Uh, because, okay, it tells you the horse is trying, but that's pretty much all it fucking tells me. Like, mm. um, I'd like to know the reasons why they fancy it. And most of the time, you know, it, it could be just he's working okay. Or they, the trainers in general, I wouldn't rate as far as analysts. There's a few of them, obviously, an exception to the real. Likewise with jockeys, most of them are, useless really like like you even hear them coming in talking after a race and saying the horse quick and three times like they're talking utter nonsense like they're, like actual data shows it didn't quick and three times it just slowed down less than the other ones and um, so mostly i wouldn't neither want nor value their opinion all that much uh there's obviously exceptions like for instance ruby walsh is uh is very good uh analyzing a race and he he would often say something that you wouldn't have thought of yourself about a horse, mm. whereas most jockeys just spout cliche after cliche, and it's really it's of limited use. And you have to remember they're very biased as well. Like when they're doing an interview after the race, you know they're not going to come out and say I could have won ten lengths on the horse that just got up half a length after, you know, because it, it, it's not in their best interest to say that yeah. unless they're trying to sell it or something like that. And then it's in their best interest to exaggerate that way, but. In general, and the same reason for trainers. Like, have you ever had a horse disappoint that they didn't have an excuse for? Most of the time, the excuse is bogus. I think you have to make up your own mind. Going would be a good one, actually. How many times has a trainer said a horse doesn't go on certain ground and the form book absolutely, totally contradicts them? Totally refutes it. Or a and season later. Nine, yeah. nine times out of 100. Absolutely. Or or a season later, it turns out that that horse is then thriving on, let's say, gets beaten, a horse gets beaten on, on good stuff ground and the trainer says, oh, going didn't suit him today, yet a season later, bolts up on good stuff ground. Or what yeah, changed? There's, there's a lot. Of, I think you would be better off ignoring most of what they say than listening to everything they say. And it would be maybe something that punters could definitely, uh, even like, uh, in general, say, People you meet, I could, like, I uh, started playing golf there a couple of years ago and uh, mm-hmm. joined the club. And even 
so you tell people what your job is and they're interested. They, they, they like a bet. But even then, and the, if you tell them, do you think a horse is a good bet? They, they kind of want to know, oh yeah, is it fancy like, or did the trainer tell you? Or the, they, they, will, they will back it with much more confidence if the trainer told me than if I tell them that I just spent fucking 500 hours analyzing data and coming up with reasons why this horse would be under bet. That won't impress them much at all. They, they'll uh, they'll have far more confidence in the in the bet if the jockey told me or the owner or the owner's friend or like I think that's definitely into Irish people more so. It seems to be knocked into us from a young age that you know more about inside information, which I think is a bad thing for for racing because it stops. I think a lot of people getting into it because they think it's uh, it's crooked when it's not really anywhere near as bad as as well. A lot, a lot of uh, outsiders to semi-outsiders would think it's nowhere near as bad as as a lot of outsiders would think and you've just nailed it there like the, the amount of friends i have who have zero interest in horse racing you know i'm out for a coffee with friends and and they're saying to me yeah but like how do you know the horse is going to win well like i don't i just i think it's going to win but like has the trainer like has the trainer told you something because like they all know don't they no they don't and you can even like use the example of new approach against Henry the Navigator. Like, that was an immovable object against an unstoppable force. Jim Bulger's team were absolutely adamant they were going to crush Henry the Navigator in the rematch in the 2000 Guineas of the Curra. And the Valley Doyle team were absolutely convinced that they were going to crush Henry the Navigator went and won, which resulted in new approach going up and trip for the Derby, which he then won, and caused that whole kerfuffle because Jim Bulger was saying, well, there's more than one Derby and we're going to go for the Irish one. I actually backed him out. I think 70 on Betfair... He, straight after Boulder said he wasn't running in it. That is superb after diving. Oh, superb! But um, it is a it is a good example of why ignoring what the trainer or jockey said when logic dictates different. Like my reason for backing new approach was that I thought if he ran the Derby, he would have a very good chance, mm. and I couldn't see Sheikh Mohammed refusing a chance to win the Derby. Yeah. So I thought he's probably nearly fifty fifty to run in it, despite what Boulder said, because every bit of sense says that the owner would want to run in it. And it's the same as when a trainer says a horse uh, uh, won't run because he doesn't like the ground or I'm worried about the ground today. And you look at its form and like I would use, say, time form uh, a good bit, race passes, and I would use their going description over, say, the official one because I think it's more accurate. Say you've seen that the horse's best uh, run was on what time form called soft ground, but yet you have the trainer saying it needs fast ground like you know he's talking through his fucking backside like (laughs) and but the general public would pay a good bit of credence to his comments and so there would be a situation where you could have an angle into a race because you know what the reason you know when the horse now is 12 to 1 when you make him 6 to 1 you know the reason he's 12 to 1 it's because people have paid too much heed to what the trainer said I Uh, I quite we we made a point about a, a race at Newmarket over the summer it was a maiden where sir michael stout and john gosden both entered uh, fairly highly touted newcomers and um they were both backed as though defeat was out of the question it was the gosden horse came out and won but like the stout team must have been going away since going how the hell did we get beaten there it was just two very good maidens that happened to clash in the same race uh, and both teams very much fancied them i remember paul nichols last year really talking up Clan de Sobo for the Betfair chase 
like being to, to the almost being dismissive of everything else. Obviously, he didn't win that, but he did come out and win the King George. So his faith in the horse was rewarded, and and that stuck with me. How confident he was about him in the Betfair Chase, and the fact that he was still talking him up for the King George. Like there can be times, and and we've made the the observation on the show before about horses who get backed from big stables in big races where the market move does not seem to make sense in terms of form, like declaration of war going off at six to four or eleven to eight for the lock-in stakes didn't make sense. He got beaten. But he was then a 10 to 1 shot for the Queen Anne. Late money came in. I think he went off 15 to 2 and he won. And it turned out he was a multiple group one winner for, for the Coolmore team. They knew something that we didn't. We see that with Willie Mullins as well. I quite like it when you read the stable tours. And I think there are certain trainers who it, it can be very valuable to read quotes from and then keep that in your arsenal for later in the in the season. But at the same time, I completely take your point that you would be much more confident going with your own opinion and that also there can be just a lot of nonsense talked. I suppose it goes back to time as well. Like, Obviously, if you get to know all of the the trainers and when they say this, what they really mean is this, Mm. or how confident and not confident they generally are. Like, Clive Britton, everything was going to win. Like, (laughs) With the little dance. you get to know them in intimate detail like that well then yeah you will get value out of reading the stable tours but for me for the time it would take to do that i think my time would be much better off spent doing something different so what would be your main piece of advice then to final foreign podcast listeners who want to brush up on their betting and be a little bit more confident and stronger when placing a bet whether it's a Saturday or a midweek race, what would be your main piece of advice? I think you should try and improve on everything and definitely improve your race reading skills. Uh, use section of times, use every bit of info you can and try and learn what each of those mean to this horse's chances. Um, do that an- analysis as well. Like Obviously not everyone is going to do it if somebody wants to be successful, but there's, there is different ways into a race. You could do... Even trend analysis has its place, but what I find with trends analysis is people use winners. Likewise, they do when they're maybe looking at an angle for, say, oh, a trainer as well, first time out, and they only use past winners. Mostly with small sample sizes, using places or percentage rivals beaten will be a much better predictor of future winners than using the past winners, if you know what I mean. Mm. In that, you just don't, there's too much noise in the sample, and by increasing it to use more of the data, which you are doing if you're using places, is better. Uh, so definitely if you're using 10-year trends, at least use percentage rivals beaten, which will it'll give you more chance of spotting something that actually is a trend rather than it's just noise. Declan, uh, is, the, is the biggest fault with trends that you can just manipulate them to conform, confirm your own pre-existing hypothesis? I think you can do that with statistics in general. In other words... You can always use. You can always nearly partition your data in a, in a way that can prove your point, if you know what I mean. Yeah. By leaving out a certain and you in this, it's like some of the election stuff in England at the moment, or what was going on there in December. Most of it, they 
what what was one of the things he said that somebody punched somebody and nothing like that happened at all. Your man walked into his finger. Oh, but yeah, that spread all over the place, and it's kind of the same with with data analysis in that you can come up with a you can come up with something to say what you wanted to say, and somebody that's an expert at data analysis will spot the mistake you make, but that won't matter because ninety nine percent of the people won't, and you'll have still achieved your goal, which was to influence whatever you wanted to influence. Um, so I think you can, yeah, you can definitely misuse. You have to, if you're analyzing something, you have to do it properly. And definitely, if you're if you're trying to look for profitable angles or building a model, you can't. You have to use the data in in a correct type of way that you're not just filtering it to use the bit that will give you the answer that you want. And I think with everything, you have to use your head. I think the biggest the biggest thing for anyone that wants to make money or limit their losses. They have to think for themselves and they have to ask themselves why. Um, and even say doing come back to data analysis, if you I know a lot like I've read stuff on different modeling and sports and when people from a statistic background tries to model, say, soccer, they will throw anything into the model that has uh, that a, say has a confidence interval that says it's significant, which is normally they use ninety five percent. And they'll say, Oh, well that means that's significant, so therefore it goes in the model. But like, if it doesn't make any sense, the chances of it repeating in the future, I don't care how significant it was in the past, is very unlikely. Mm. Like say, you're looking at a certain track and stall five does really well. And you're what, going to blindly back stall five over that trip just because over the last 10 years I had a significant uh, profit. But even though you look at four and stalls four and six and they don't have anywhere near the same record, it doesn't make any sense. So it, it shouldn't you should you should always look for something to make sense before you will use it in the future. And that goes with I think no matter what angle you look in, you have to have an edge to make money. But no matter what edge you have, it shouldn't be just solely based on a number or a it has it should definitely make sense to you before you should go ahead with it. How do you feel about multiple bets? I don't do them because I don't really have any uh bookie accounts and you would obviously need a bookie account, but also another reason not to do them would be you will generally not get, if you're, you have two horses, there's nothing wrong with them in that there was always a theory that if, if you're doing multiples, it's more for the mug punter because you're multiplying your negative edge over a series of bets rather than just one. Uh, but if you have a positive edge, there's no reason not to do a multiple. So in other words, if you have one horse at six to four and you're getting two to one on it, and another one at seven to four, and you're getting two to one. Doing a multiple, there's not. It's it's still a very good bet. There's nothing because you're multiplying a positive edge. But at the same time, can you get two to one with the same bookie on both horses? Whereas if you're backing them singly, you can. So mm. that would be an issue I'd have with them, in that you will often end up taking under the odds on on some of the the, the, the parts of the multiple rather than if you back them all singly and you could get the best price on all of them. Um. I- it, it kind of goes without saying then, Declan, that because of your success, you've been clamped. So it's it's the bet for exchange you're using. Yeah. And like even like I have members of my premium service. Now I do have, I think it's running just over six years, my premium service. And I do have members with me from right at the very start. But like obviously sometimes you will get a member, you'll have a bad month. They won't stick around. But in general... 
by a mild reason most people leave and they email you and tell you is because they can't get on anymore they've lost a good few accounts and they just can't get they just don't have accounts to get the bets on and while I suppose I'm making money and then I have all my members back in the horses and that's my way of, of making a profit there is people that do it themselves that have been betting 20 years losing money suddenly they start breaking even and that's fine and then suddenly they got good enough to finally make money after devoting their whole life to actually getting good at it and then suddenly their accounts get closed like i think that's i think it's very wrong like it's shameful i don't think i don't expect the bookmakers to change unless they're made to change but i do think they should probably have to change because with the way they advertise, it's kind of nearly like with a come take us on attitude, whereas the truth is, is a long way from that. And uh, like I know they say, oh, a bank doesn't have to give a loan to a bad credit risk. But the whole thing about bookmakers is they advertise in a way that says, we're going six to one, come and have a bet with us. Like everything about their advertising suggests it's a game between you and them, except for you're not allowed to play the game if you're any good. Mm. And that's something that we've covered on the podcast on on numerous and countless occasions. And it's actually just something that really annoys me. It's something yeah, that is, that, that is it, actually quite depressing, really. Because I think it is. Like, I, I, don't, I don't see how they couldn't do almost just as well if they maybe improved their standards with odds compiling and then they would be more confident in their own prices. And then, like, a bookmaker... It, if you looked up bookmaker in uh, Oxford Dictionary, what would it say? Would it would it not say something like making a book, which is like traditionally back in the day, a bookmaker, the name was coined because they made a book and they were nearly, rather than taking an opinion, they were more balancing the, so that they took enough money on everything that they had made a profit no matter which horse won, which would mean using people like that were sharp to adjust your odds to make them more accurate. Mm. Like... I haven't tried to get a bet on a bookmaker in a long time. It's, it doesn't interest me. And in any case, I, I, when you're running the tipping service, you kind of, you couldn't, even if I could get on with a, a bookmaker, you couldn't go and put a bet on with them before sending the tip to everyone else because probably the reason you're getting on is the bookmaker would be using you as a mark and then they would cut the price afterwards. So mm. you couldn't do that anyway. So it's not something I've tried, but I wouldn't have accounts with any of the, there's obviously new bookmakers coming out of the woodwork all the time. And, oh, yeah. And I haven't even tried to open an account with them because the stories you hear, I don't think it's it's worthwhile. Uh, I don't know. I, you would hope it would get better uh, and the bookmakers would maybe be bookmakers. They would still make a lot of money. They might have to morally, not morally because they don't really care. Uh, <laughs> the, way, the way it's going now in that, you know, the way there is more uh, punishments for them blatantly exploiting people, say, with problem gambling, that were stealing money and stuff like that. The fact that that, that is happening, you would think the effect of that would be that eventually it might become totally unacceptable for them to, to, to uh, target people that like really haven't got a clue what they're doing, whether it doesn't really matter how they're, if it's their own money or not, but you're, you're still exploiting people in a way if that's your only focus. And anyone that has a clue doesn't get a bet on, I think that maybe would become less acceptable for them to do and they would be forced into 
treating everyone the same. And that, in other words, if they lay Joe Bloggs a grand at five to one, they have to lay me a grand at five to one. Yeah, I think that's and true. And it won't be acceptable for them to have high rollers who are basically not really high rollers, but high losers. Mm. Well, that seems perfectly fair to me. And I don't see why the gambling regulator hasn't stepped in to enforce that yet. But But we shall see what the new year brings. With that in mind, as we approach 2020, What's your New Year's resolution regarding betting, or do you even have one? Um, I don't think I, w- I would change anything. Like just so I, that I would suddenly do any different. Uh, I think I'm always looking at, at different uh, different ways to improve because uh, I know you mentioned to me off air about Padraig Harrington uh, changing his swing when he was winning. Yeah, but and then everyone suddenly criticizes him because why did he change what worked? But Padraig Harrington would have never got to that position in the first place if he didn't change his swing all of the time. He meddled with his swing every year for every year that he was a, a golfer. And he got better and better and better. And then suddenly people criticized the time when it didn't work. And that he found it hard to get back to that the same level. But like he would have never got to that level in the first place if he wasn't always striving to get better and doing the same thing is rarely striving to get better. So I'd be a big advocate of not changing anything for the sake of it. Like say a losing one that is, is more than likely luck, but you, you always have to look at it to see, is it luck? To see, is there another reason to see, could you, can you improve? I think standing still is, and everything is going backwards. So I think I'll just keep doing that. Um, oh yeah, always looking to, to improve and it's kind of like what you were saying when you when you're talking to me like you might think 99% of it is is stuff you already knew but there might be the 1% where somebody says something you actually hadn't thought of and so listening to other people I'll always read a lot of stuff uh, a lot of it you'll gloss over yeah know that know that know that but the thing that you don't know is you know it's it's improving your overall game yeah no it's it's when you speak to, or when I have a conversation with Chris Cook, Roy Delarkey, yourself, Jane Mangan, we may very well all have the same view, but you could say something that I just I hadn't looked at, or I hadn't seen it that way, or it hadn't occurred to me. And, it, and I, I will always come away from a conversation feeling like I know something more about a particular subject, or, or that I feel something, I feel I know something more about a horse. It could be a small thing, but it's going to be a, a contributing factor to the rest of the season in my head and I always feel as though that's that's important because you constantly have to strive to to make yourself better particularly in this game when it's an evolving game and and, and very fast-paced evolving game as well learn bet win is the site what is the general sign up system Declan I have a generally I have a, a monthly option which is subscription via PayPal uh, and it re- renews monthly, but you can cancel it anytime you want. And I do have a new member offer for that, which is about, I think, 25% off. <clears throat> Sorry, which is about 25% off. Uh, and then I have a, a profit target option, which is uh, you join, pay a fee, and your membership lasts until we make 80 points profit. And the 80 points profit isn't done on the the actual odds, it's done on the, the price five minutes after I send a bet. So it gives everyone a, a fair chance to get on and at least match the the official total. And in truth, they could, if you're quick, you should probably be able to beat it and you have accounts because it doesn't 
the, none of the totals on my website count uh, best odds guaranteed, which would add a few percent onto your your long term profit if you if you did count it. So oh, I think play. it's it's very fair. Um, and they're the two main ways. I I have a Shetland tip site as well that is just the four days, and I do various festival packages as well. Um, and they'll be just based on you know whatever it is three four days. Um, there was actually one point I wanted to make when we were talking about an edge and different ways to to maybe get one. Uh, I think it it's sensible to when you're trying to come up with an edge, and this is more related to any sport. Try and beat try and beat the market that's uh, what would you use suitable for your for the bets that you'll be placing. If you only have a betting bank of a thousand euro, which is quite small, you're not going to be betting big stakes, or at least you shouldn't be. So you don't need to try and beat the say you're betting on soccer. You don't need to try and beat the Premiership market. Like the reason that all of the top the Premiership market is littered with really big gamblers who have access to the best quantity of college and programmers and million pound data budgets. And they're the ones that are, they're betting into their markets and the prices totally are going to be very, very accurate mm. by the time a match goes off and beating them to even a very small percentage is very hard. And you've only got a thousand euros to bet. Why, why are you trying to beat a market? The reason they're trying to beat it is because they can get millions on, but you don't, you're not putting on millions. So why don't you bet on division three or something like that? You can easily get on the 100 quid bet that you should be having on, but you will find that your edge will be much, much bigger than trying to beat the the premiership. And it would be, that would go across horse race. And if you can't, if, you're, if your uh, bank is quite small, you don't need to be able to get um, thousands on nearly off on Betfair. So try beating it in the morning when you could maybe drip fivers and tenors bets in. You will find your edge will be it'll be much easier to beat the market in the morning than it will a couple of minutes before the off, or maybe focus on a different market like the place market. So everything should be suitable. There's no point in trying to beat a market that you're not going to be putting the bets on. In that market, you're not going to be. You don't need to play that market to for the bet size you'll be putting on. So try and beat an easier market. So think pick a market that will be more suitable to the bets you're putting on. As a friend of mine, James Fennell, who's a pro punter or pro better, I should say, and he specializes in the Champions League, Europa League and Bundesliga because he feels there's no point in trying to get stuck into the Premier League because the Asian market just swamps it. And you've got the likes of Tony Bloom and others who've, who can do exactly as, as you've outlined. Um, when you talk about staking plans in, in your betting bank, how important is that? And something like the Kelly criterion, for example, which is mentioned by a, a lot of pro punters. You're a believer in that, aren't you? Yeah, I would. Uh, I'd use a variation of it. Uh, in, in other words, the Kelly criterion is really your, it's your edge, your betting bank, and the odds of the, the horse to decide how much of your betting bank you would stake. But the problem with it is that calculating your edge, do you calculate a different edge for every bet? Or do you say, well, on average, my edge is 18%, so therefore I go with that for everything. I think going with that for everything and then only backing horses that you think will meet that criteria would be better than recalculate. Because I just think if you recalculated your edge for every horse, you, you will overestimate some hugely and end up staking far too much. Uh, I do think it's optimal. It is optimal. Mathematically, it's optimal if you know your edge. The problem with sports betting is you don't know for a fact your edge. And 
most people would probably overestimate it. In other words, they will look at past results or they'll come up with a, an angle and say, oh, I, this angle made 30% in the past, so therefore I'll bet with a 30% edge into the, the Kelly calculator. I wouldn't recommend doing that. Your edge might be 10% or 15 but it'll very unlikely be one that you had done by backfitting and past results. There might be no edge at all, but I'm saying no matter what you come up with or you should always be a little bit conservative with your edge and then use the Kelly criterion because it is better than like there's people that would bet level stakes and have the same on an even money shot as a 50 to one shot. But like, yeah, it's a very suboptimal way of using your betting bank because if your stake is correct for the 50 to one shot, if say you had a 20% edge in both, now I appreciate having a 20% edge on an even money shot would be harder, but even if it was less than 2015, you should, you should still optimally for maximum bankroll be staking a lot more on the 15% edge at even money than the 20% edge at 50 to one. Uh, so if you if you you have the right stake for one, it, it'll be the wrong stake for the other. Um, so I definitely don't think that's the way to go. But yeah, you would have Kelly criterion is mathematically sound if you know your edge, which you don't do. So I would say have a conservative estimate of your edge. I know. So even if say over the last six years betting, you had a twenty percent edge, you might still be better off plugging fifteen percent into the calculator. Like. And would you recommend? at the end of the month doing what you do going back over the bets you've placed looking at the reason as to why and how you've done that month and if it hasn't gone well for you accepting that fact but if you've been backing horses that have gone off considerably shorter on the day or if you were just a little bit unlucky as we talked about with variants earlier on know that you're on the right track and keep going with that yeah i definitely think you should but i wouldn't uh I wouldn't be too results-based when you're doing it because like a month is obviously a, a small sample. So mm. win-lose, there's, there's so much variance in it that it wouldn't be good to say, oh, well, I won this month. I must have been doing something right. Kind of like what we talked about in uh, the Monte Carlo Sims. But looking at stuff like I would have done with places, checking how you did against uh, Betfair SP uh, will tell you whether you're on the right track or you're doing something differently than normal. And even even looking at horses you don't back versus Betfair SP can actually teach you to be better at uh, picking good bets. Like say you're looking at a race, you've no bet in it, or even if you do, it doesn't really matter. And a horse gets backed into four to one from twelve to one, fifteen minutes before the race. I would often look at that and see was there was there something in the form book that could have said that horse should be four to one rather than 12 to one. Something that you can maybe, oh, well, the early market uh, gets this wrong and it's only at the off that the money comes for it. Like sometimes it will be that, yeah, today's the day and it's from a gambling yard and there's nothing really that you can predict in that beforehand. But a lot of the time, a horse drifting, either one you backed or didn't back or been backed, if you actually, it's, it's, it's something that you didn't spot when you were initially going through the race, that you can maybe train yourself for the future to pay more attention to, to looking at that particular aspect of uh, farm analysis. So even just seeing what way the market went and trying to figure out why it went like that can improve your overall uh, analysis. So as we wrap this up, what is the one key piece of advice that you want to give Final Furlong Podcast listeners as we 
heading towards the new year. Cheltenham, New Year's Day. We still have the festive racing going on, but the key piece of advice from Declan Maher as we approach 2020. I think it's just rehashing, but it's no matter whether your goal is to actually make a profit from betting or to limit your losses, obviously there's fun. You, there's a time for fun bets, but you can still limit your losses even on a fun bet because uh, you can improve your analysis in the first place to make your fun bets even better. Like if you improve your race reading skills. but So you have to learn, but you have to think for yourself. If you don't think for yourself, you won't be able to beat the market or get better at not losing to it and you have to you have to you have to know when you're placing the bet I think you should always ask yourself why am I right and the market is wrong and if you can't answer that it's more likely than not that you're actually the one that's wrong and I think that's before every bet you won't go too far wrong with that and it will actually stop you maybe placing some of the more stupid bets because when you ask yourself that question, you'll realize you're just been an ass back on the horse that you know the ground is wrong or the trip is wrong and the market hasn't accounted for it. And the reason it's in your tracker is not really valid today because you wanted it when it ran on soft ground, not taking fraction in the soft side of good. Like, um, So, yeah, I think always ask yourself that question and it will improve everyone's betting. There's a note here on the Atheraces tracker for a horse back on a low weight over three miles plus on soft ground next time out. So that means do exactly that. Don't be backing the horse over two mile four just because it's entered and you get excited at the notification. Take full, ad- back your own advice and, and back what you do. Uh, learnbetwin.com is the name of the site. Uh, as we've said, it's hugely successful. Um, the festive offer is available now. And of course, there'll be plenty of offers uh, during the new year as well. Learn Bet Win. You also have plenty of articles there. Uh, two Declan that are free to to read and uh, a lot of them are, are fascinating insights into the game and in various different ways so learn bet win highly recommend that you check that one out uh, and Declan will be back with us during the new year hopefully in the next few weeks uh, maybe even in the next week to do a review podcast with us so we're, we're looking forward to that as well uh, a pleasure as always my friend uh, cheers Emmett and a very Merry Christmas to you as well make sure you have as much champagne and gravy as you possibly can. And do I do I need winners to have the champagne, or can I just? Can't you do like the Harry Finley champagne lifestyle? That's a pro punter. That's a pro punter. Just just without the massive downside to it. Just live, <laughs> live the dream. Um, enjoy it, mate. I, I hope that uh, there's bag loads of winners coming from Learn Bet Win, and looking forward to chatting to you on the final front podcast again very very soon. All right, good man. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this special edition of the show. We will be back in the new year to review all of the festive racing. Barry Orr, Jess Stafford, Vanessa Ryan, myself, the team, will all be with you. Thanks so much for listening. Happy Christmas and a happy new year to you from all of us at the final furlong. God bless. Get 2% commission on your winnings on the Betfair exchange with My Betfair Rewards. Opt in now to start saving. My Betfair Rewards allows customers to choose their commission rate and rewards. 2% commission via basic package, which can be altered at any time. T's and C's apply. Have you downloaded the free app, The Races app yet? With easy to use race cards and form, expert daily tips, plus video replays and in-app betting, it's the app that no racing fan's phone should be without. Available for free on your iPhone or Android mobile, visit attheraces.com forward slash app for more details.